Hi. Before we start the episode, I just wanted to talk to you listeners about uh, an issue that crept up with my mic. Um, before each episode, I do some playing with the, the levels of my mic to make sure that Cruz and I, we are at the same volume and that I'm clear and well understood. Um, everything looked good, but it wasn't until I started editing the episode that I realized where my volume was good, I sounded a little bit muffled. The episode is absolutely listenable. You can understand what I'm saying. It just doesn't have the clarity and sharpness that it normally does. So I wanted to let you guys know that we are aware of the issue and that it will be fixed for the next great episode of the Comic Book Dungeon podcast and our second stop on the uh, Unpunished December. So uh, relax, enjoy the episode, and uh, wish you, I just want to wish you and your family a happy Punished December. I met you. Hello everybody, welcome to the Comic Book Dungeon Podcast, where we take a deep dive back through Marvel's history, through the esoteric, the unusual, and the weird. I am Mark, coming to you from the Comic Book Dungeon, Deep Underground. And I am Cruz coming to you from the comic book kitchen above ground. Yay me. So you're not in the uh, the the comic book garage, the death the wolf spider deadly arena? No, no, no. Uh, no, definitely not in the wolf spider arena, which is very nice for me because I don't have to wear my long fuzzy pajamas because uh, it's a little chilly out here, at least at night. And uh yeah, in, in in the comic book dungeon kitchen, because uh, yeah, when you've got four kids, two of which are freaking vomiting projectile vomit out of every single freaking direction you could imagine, you kind of want to stay where you can keep an eye on them. You know, if you wanted to get that on mic, I'm sure we could use the sound of a of projectile vomiting for a lot of different things on this show. Even though it's my kid's mic, I don't want the vomit on it because here's the thing: they didn't tell you about kids. They don't know not to cover their mouth when they projectile vomit. <laughs> so what happens is they put their hand over their mouth, and instead of projectile vomiting in like a solid stream in one direction, it just has this shotgun blast that goes everywhere. And like, I'll be honest, my wife cleaned most of it up because I was going icky, icky, ew, ew. I am not picking chunky stuff up off the floor. Yeah, that doesn't sound enjoyable at all. But while she was handling the chunky stuff on the floor, I was cleaning the walls at a four-foot-high level. Oh. I was also cleaning the light switches. I was also cleaning the door that was leading to the bathroom because my child did not make it into the bathroom to projectile vomit. So she got it all over the hallway, which is about four and a half feet wide, and she managed to shoot projectile vomit in this wonderful fan pattern that got on both sides of the hall and the floor. None of that sounds enjoyable. It wasn't. (laughs) Not by a long shot. I probably shouldn't be telling the story on the air, which is what makes it fun. But uh, my wife tells a story about when she was a child. Uh, She slept in the same room with her sister and she was feeling sick. So her sister went to get her mom. And the whole time, Ashley was barely holding back to throw up. 
And so her mom came in and started asking her a bunch of questions, like, what are you feeling? What's going on? And the whole time, you know, Ashley was trying to hold back the throw up. And, you know, she's just try- like in her head, she's screaming, we just got to go to the bathroom. We just got to go to the bathroom. But she couldn't hold it back anymore. And she just puked. Just, it just came out. And her mom had to like grab it in her like in her night like her nightgown and just she made like she she just made like a a scoop in it and she just to hold all this projectile vomit that Ashley did and just she had to like carry it to the bathroom. Let's see if that makes it uh, uh through the editing process. Yeah, we'll see if that makes it through. Yeah, <laughs> I've got I've got a couple of similar stories like that. Some involve my children and some involve grown men. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we started last episode with poop and now we're starting this one with throw up which i think is good because man i cannot tell you how popular our last episode was yeah i think as long as we start with bodily fluids i think our numbers will stay higher yeah i mean we 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 are fully international now we have a bunch of new readers from a bunch or listeners from a bunch of different areas yeah i mean we actually we did some kick-ass numbers i mean we almost doubled our downloading numbers in one week so i mean yeah. we're Doing some good stuff, so I think my plea to have people tell other comic book fans about what they're what we're doing here—it's the grassroots movement. This is awesome. We're appreciating it. We're appreciate. I think we've gotten a, a couple more reviews on iTunes. You can't see them until we hit a certain number. So if you guys want to leave some more reviews and actually write how great this is, or how disgusted and disturbed you are by it, or wondering why people would choose to do an entire podcast based upon comics that most people don't remember anymore. Hey, we'd like to get that feedback. Absolutely. And uh, thank you listeners for uh, spreading the word, spreading the love a little bit. And I figure with our international audience, our scatological discussion from last episode and talking about vomit this week should make us really huge in Germany. <laughs> if we really want to get those Germany numbers up, um, I think we're, we're going to have to mention David Hasselhoff. <laughs> Which let's stick a pin in because that's going to come up later. Um, oh God! <laughs> okay, go. Just keep going. But yeah, I, I also wanted to issue a quick correction over last week. I was horrified when I was listening to the show, and I said that I liked Transformers the movie more than GI Joe the movie. I like them both, but in my mind, GI Joe the movie with the broadcast energy transmitter and Globulus and Nebula or nemesis enforcer it is it's the superior product you know it's a controversial pick and again if you guys would like to talk about your pick or talk about your poops or talk about the time that you puked on your mom you can email us at comicbookdungeonpodcast at gmail.com or talk about the time i puked on your mom that'll be fine too <laughs> if you have a story about cruz puking on your mom you will <laughs> Don't even email about that. Record that and send it in, and we'll play that on the show. (laughs) So while we're talking about video format stuff, I I remember a couple episodes back I had talked about wanting to watch The the Runaways. I see what you're saying about the ums. Uh, yeah, it came out on Hulu a couple weeks ago. It's uh, in its third show, and so far it's staying uh, relatively true to the source material, but they are padding the story out to get a whole season worth of content out of it, it feels like. For me, that's a, a show I would be interesting to see where they go. I don't know if we want to get into spoilers here, 
but there's going to be a couple shakeups at the end of that first big story arc with a couple of the characters, and that's something that that seems like that'd be hard not to create spoilers. And it's also it's kind of weird for me the timing of that new show starting because I've heard that Disney's trying to do their own streaming company and that they're reserving all new Marvel shows for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely odd about that. Um, also picked up uh, watching The Punisher on Netflix because uh, he got his own little series. And uh, I, you know, I remember reading The Punisher back when I was far, far younger. So I'm, I, and I wasn't really into it that much. So I'm not too savvy with a lot of the characters and everything. But uh, I, I know that the, the Netflix series have tried to say, at least within the ballpark of the characters they're trying to portray. Well, yeah, that being said, I think they've been doing... Uh, they definitely get the no-holds-barred aspect of Frank Castle right. In my mind, I mean, I could see why they'd want to do a Punisher a show, because he's, he's a very popular character. But for me, he's he's kind of a weird choice to carry a show. I've listened to other podcasts where they've talked about what makes the Punisher good or what makes a good Punisher story. So I know that probably a lot of our listeners have heard this before, but I mean, I have to agree with the popular consensus of, I think when the Punisher's done well, it's not really a Punisher story. The Punisher, he's less of a character and he's more of a force of nature. It's, you get in his head as much as you get to see why he has a plan how it all comes together, but he's not a character that should have emotional weaknesses or these human reactions. His stories, when they work well, it's almost like he's a shark. He's this relentless mechanism to move the story forward, but he's not, he doesn't have pity. He doesn't have sadness. He doesn't have happiness. He's just this like this detached mechanism. And it's like I said, it's almost like a enforceable, unstoppable force of nature I think those are the the great Punisher stories. Yeah, I can see that, definitely. And I think that's hard to anchor an entire show around a character that you don't want to have any human qualities to the the character. So I I would imagine the show has a lot of him, like, dealing with the death of his family and centered on that. It it does, and there's some ancillary characters that are brought in there, and uh, it definitely uh, has a lot of side story that's based around uh, PTSD and veterans discharging and kind of transitioning into uh, civilian life. Interesting to see. Yeah, it does It does dwell on Frank Castle and his family a little bit, but as more in the form of a recurring nightmare. But other other than that, he's, he's that's like the only thing that, that gives him like a, a human touchstone in the show. Everything else that he does is basically a cold, relentless, like, the one thing I can say about the character and the portrayal is that he is almost mechanical. Because once he gets his eyes set on a target, he does go after it with that relentless precision. Yeah, that's that's what I love about the character. I think it was the uh, Rick Remender run. Microchip is brought back from, from the dead, and... They grab the Punisher, his his family's corpses, and they do this arcane ritual, and they bring his family back from the dead. And fucking Frank doesn't even hesitate. He sets them on fire and kills them again. Holy just, shit. Yeah, I mean, he's just, 
It's like, that's not my family. My family's dead. Just whoosh. Whatever. I believe it was a flamethrower. I might have to go back and double check that. But I mean, it was just, I remember being blown away. Like, how are they going to take care of that? I mean, they didn't even, just a second, they're alive again and they're being burned to death again. It was just the most emotionless, pitiless, merciless thing I'd, I'd, I'd read in a while. I, 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 I thought it's, I, I was prepared for it to be very stupid, this. Oh, because I think the Punisher also works better when he's, it's okay for him to touch some of the, 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 the corners of the Marvel Universe. It's always fun when he's like trying to get into an enemy stronghold and he uses like a stolen web shooter or there's an issue where he repaints a goblin glider with like a Punisher symbol on it. Those sorts of <laughs> things. But I mean, when you, or when he, he just, he killed everybody, like all the, the C-list superhero or supervillains in the bar with no name. See, that sort of stuff is fun, but trying to bring him too much in with, like, the team-ups with Spider-Man or some of the other characters, if it's done well, like, I always like the stuff where he fights, like, Wolverine, like, where he runs him over with a, uh, with a uh, steamroller or something like that, but it gets a little bit too carny, too cartoony sometimes when you try to pull him in, I think, to the, the larger-than-life Marvel Universe. But, man, I, I could go on about the Punisher all night. And if you have your favorite Punisher stories, again, write to us. Let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear them. Awesome. Okay, so uh, I guess we should transition to Kill Raven. Just one last thing I wanted to talk about before we get going in. We just had Thanksgiving here, if you're listening in the United States. Um, and that also means Black Friday. And I'm hoping some of our listeners grab some of the great Comixology sales. There were comics that were 80 or 90, 80 to like 90% off. So much shit on my wish list uh, went on sale. I grabbed a ton of really weird and strange comics because that's what I listen or I, I read. So I hope other people grab that savings as well. If you're a Comixology user, I mean, if you just look, every week they have these big clearance sales. So it's, it's, you can't lose. Outstanding. It's glorious. And talking about glorious, go to Kill Raven, our Amazing Adventures, issue 23. It's the March 1974 issue. It's got a cover a price that's a, a low, low 20 cents. All right. Yeah. Before we jump in, can you tell me what's different about this cover from any other cover that we've seen so far? Kill Raven's pants are on not only the uh, illustration, the main illustration, but also on the banner one. Yes, Kill Raven is wearing pants, like you said, both in the banner and on uh, the actual picture. It's the first time he's worn fucking pants on the cover. I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah, this is a. That's probably the only nice thing I'm going to say about this cover. So I was going to savor it. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I, I'd say another nice thing is they they got rid of the stupid red banner behind it, like they had on the last episode uh, issue. I'm wondering if that was some sort of coloring error, because they've never done it before. I'm just looking at the, the next issue. It's there. I don't know why they're... It's not something you typically see in comics, and it's just because it's why Why would you cut the cover in half like that? You're, that's your appeal to get people to, to read the issue. You want to fill that with as much eye candy as you can get, which usually means a half-naked kill read. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after reading the issue, looking at the cover... It, it's definitely the cover looks I'm not going to say it looks great. And, and I will say that what they're showing on the cover is definitely a little misleading for what you get in the book, because Absolutely. frankly, I, I, I think both of us feel that this is probably the most underwhelming 
Kill Raven episode, uh, Kill Raven issue. Oh yeah, I, I definitely, I've, I felt each issue has gotten better, and this one, I was waiting. They left this in such a great place in last month or the last issue, and I was waiting to see the conclusion of the story, and it just didn't come together the way I wanted it to or thought it could. Right, and I felt like it was really a, an abbreviated story as well, and I'm not going to accuse them too much of trying to make a filler piece but this was a filler piece and, and i really think if they had done uh, like we kind of talked about when they were doing kill raven goes to washington and at least had a couple of side stories on his way to washington there would have been no call for whatever this lame attempt at extending an issue out was because this really should have been a part of an issue, not a whole issue devoted to it. I feel too, I didn't. I'm not sure if I mentioned this in other podcasts. It did, It felt like, say, last issue, they were going to Washington, but they didn't really fully flesh out why they wanted to go to Washington. I know that Camilla is like, oh, that's where the Martian warlords are. So what? Are you there to reconnoiter the situation, or are you going to attack like the leader of the the, the Martian occupation with? Mashula, Killraven, Hawk, and Old Skull. I mean, it doesn't seem like you had put together much of a force to make that happen. It's just usually you 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 would build an arm, you would do something before you got to that point. So I mean, their their objective didn't seem very clear to me, and I think that's kind of why this issue suffered because they didn't know what direction to go. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it it does seem so lost. We can point more of this stuff out inside of the issue. I will say the illustration uh, on the cover, you know, Kill Raven's got his pants on. He's he's looking pretty good, uh, getting attacked by a crap ton of rats. Yeah, he's kicking ass. They he he he's drawn really, really, really well. He's not my issue on this cover. Yeah, he's he has drawn really well. And I, I'm gonna assume your issue is mint julep. That is definitely my main issue is is mint julep on the cover. Yeah, now, what is your issue with mint julep? Okay, so here's what's going on on the cover. where the, You have the White House in the background. You have Killraven, who's being attacked by these wolverine-sized rats, and he is, he's getting mauled, but he's kicking ass. Then we see a humanoid rat in the background, and I called him Ratak. Is that how you pronounced it? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm going with Rattack too. I'm very he he looks almost more like a teddy bear, like a skinny teddy bear, than a rat. In my mind, he looked less like a Marvel Comics character and more like a second string He Man character. And part of that was because I was very concerned, or very not concerned, confused by what he was wearing. It looks like he's wearing bumblebee's torso as a halter top and i just i have no idea why he's not like why he's wearing like a metal like halter top it's that's not even like body i don't know it's he's kind of a train wreck but that he's in the background but my main issue is in the foreground is mint julep and my argument has been that mint julep is a better kill raven than kill raven and we see that this issue she's just an ass kicker but not on this cover on the cover her sword's broken, and she's drawn in this, uh, laying on her back in this very 70s porno-esque pose. And she just, she looks scared and overwhelmed like she's in shock, and she has absolutely no agency of her own. It's absolutely implied she's this damsel that Kill Raven is coming to rescue. 
that doesn't happen in the issue. I don't understand why the one or we've introduced a couple of these these good female strong female characters, Camilla Frost and more so Mint Julep, and they just have to totally neuter her on the cover. Right. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you there. I do like the the caption in the lower left hand corner that tells you why they came up with the giant rat story. It's a bit derivative. It's we have they're bigger than Ben, wilder than Willard, and they're out for blood. Um, I believe it was in 1971 the movie Willard came out, which is about a socially awkward man who uses a large colony of rats to murder people. They remade the movie, I think, in the early 2000s. But then there was a sequel to it just called Ben because the main, the lead rat was called, from the first one was called Ben. This was probably written in 73 and then published in 74. So you could definitely tell they were riding that, that, that in the pop culture, that idea of giant rats murdering people. <laughs> Good times, man. Which, which act, and actually, this is very topical because there was an article on several different news companies' websites this week about insect and rodent infestations in the White House. So that was strange. I, I thought that was kind of funny while we were reading this. That was published in the news. Are they actually literally talking about insects and rodents, or are they talking about the actual government, you know, that's in the White House right now? Yeah, the the cockroaches and the rats were complaining about the corruption and the smell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, we've never gotten called out for that. I, I, I just like to vent anywhere. <laughs> If you would like to comment on us being bleeding heart liberals and respecting uh, the president of the United States, who definitely would have won the popular vote, if not for those pesky illegal aliens that nobody can prove that we're going to keep out with the see-through solar-powered panel wall, um, you can write to us at Comic Book Dungeon Podcast and let us know about uh, what kind of leftist commies we are. Absolutely. Uh, I, I like how facts. I made a I made a big deal about getting right to it and moving right through because we have two things to cover and I derailed us at every turn. Oh uh, yeah, you, we've been doing a good job of derailing each other. So are that's we, what people love. Yeah. How's it, okay? Do we have anything left on the cover? I mean, oh eh. no, sounds like we uh we we covered all the bases. Let's move in. With um, We get our creative team on the first page. This issue was, again, uh, written by Don McGregor. Herb Trippy was the artist. Frank Shermonti is the inker. Jay Costanza is the letterer. Pete Goldberg is the colorist. And Roy Thomas, as ever, is the editor. And this is the, the issue is titled The Legend Killer. The Legend Assassins. Uh, what did I... Oh, The Legend Assassins. Yes. That's... My apologies. No worries, man. It says ass twice in there, which is what drew my eye to it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so, yeah, we start with a full page spread for our first panel. Absolutely. And uh, it's it's got a rather, I don't know, I don't, I don't care for how Killraven's drawn, but it picks right up off where last issue ended, which was uh, Abraxas, the tentacled freak. Uh, was throwing Kill Raven at the Martians off of the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Kill Raven's face, he has the Camilla Frost crazy ex-girlfriend face going. 
Yeah, that and it looks like he's been freaking doing meth for about freaking 10 years because it looks like he aged really fast. Yeah, he, he does not look good. But yep, we you're right. We took this is right after the last issue. He just got thrown to the Martians. We see him front and center with Abraham Lincoln in the background. We see him front and center with the Martian tentacles, uh, and it picks up right from uh, last issue. Right, and if you, if you look in the lower right hand side, you can actually see a, a a couple of the fever of Martians uh, out there. <laughs> Um, and this, in the left, you actually drawn... see Cam- Camilla is back there. She's actually getting down. Yeah, she looks very uh, heavy metal-esque. Yeah. But yeah, she is throwing down. The Martians look more adorable and confused and less menacing and Lovecraftian that we see in the I right know, corner. right? Don't they look like, they look like you want to pet them. <laughs> yeah, they look like you uh, ironed the wrinkles out of some California raisins. <laughs> a bit of humidifier and you know let them just kind of plump up a little bit yeah, but i mean let's be honest there, this is this is a busy splash page there's a lot going on i mean the detail on kill raven his face is like you said he's totally totally methed out but we have a braxis in the background uh, with the abe lincoln memorial behind him we yeah, have right. mashula yep. i mean they crammed a lot in this cover some detail was going to get lost yeah we're yeah. not a cover but splash page yeah, I'll concede that point. Definitely, it is really busy. We we have Kill Raven looking very defiant. He's about to go to work. He's about to put in some work with his sword. And we ended last issue with Abraxas threatening to kill him and then mankind. And Kill Raven's not putting up with that bullshit. He lets us know he's making a mockery of that threat, and they will not make uh, good on killing him or humanity. Right, you get a little bit of a you know flavor text about what year it is, about how no one had calendars anymore, and it basically turned into the Charlie Brown teacher going romp 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 because it's really just you know exposition for the sake of freaking just talking or writing, you should say. Yeah, all all these amazing adventures seem to be very exposition heavy in the beginning, and I agree. That I I mean, I didn't even write this one up in my notes. It just seemed it, it seemed very unnecessary. Yeah. So yeah, basically, uh, Kill Raven's uh, shaking his fists and saying some uh, disparaging comments at Abraxas and the oh so cuddly Martians. Well, they're not saying anything. They're they I guess one of the tripods above has a speaker and it's speaking for the martian and basically explains how kill raven is just too damn politically important to kill off i enjoy that they they made fun of kill raven for his impromptu speeches sorry i said something and it made my phone turn siri on (laughs) (laughs) yeah so they 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 make fun of kill raven for for giving his little impromptu speeches and he does not appreciate that and so in response, he cuts off one of the Martian tentacles, which was pretty badass. I enjoyed it. Hey, that was one hell of a one-liner right there. Oh, yes. You find my speech is laughable, then laugh at this. That's the one thing I did like about this issue is it, Kill Raven. The only thing that they got right, I think, was the tone of Kill Raven and just how flippant and just defiant he is. Yes. And that's what we get in every scene with Kill Raven. You know, I wish there would have been like a little onomatopoeia for the, for the slicing of the tentacle. That would have been nice. Right. So after a kill raven uh, <laughs> takes out a Martian tentacle, we see that he's grabbed by two of these tripods, and they, t- they start to carry him off. 
Yeah, and uh, apparently Old Skull doesn't care for that too much. He continues to refer refer to himself in the third person, which has even Mashula puzzled. They, they took a, a long time to point out his odd speech that, that, to me, speaks to some sort of cognitive impairment. I like that in the, the top panel on page three, how concerned Old Skull is, his mustache is drooping. Old Skull has a hell of a mustache. All he can see is that Kill Raven's in danger, and he wants to spring into da- action. And all Mashula is trying to voice is some sort of caution. And he goes, Old Skull goes full Lemmy from of mice and men, and just like, just it almost just as an afterthought, just slams Mashula out of his way and runs off to go help Kill Raven without a plan. Yeah, yeah, he definitely, uh, he he definitely has that. Jeez. I just, I can't say it in a nice way. He's got that simple person strength going on. Yeah, I mean, he's absolutely, they've made him, like, he's the the Lemmy from Of Mice and Men. And uh, uh, that, nobody will hurt my Mr. Killraven, and I will love him, and I will squeeze him, and I will name him Killraven, and he will be my bestest friend for all eternity. Yeah, he's absolutely Lenny. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he, it just, his little shove is enough to, to throw Mashula over, which is unfortunate because now he's attacked by two of Lando's rogues. And of course, we remember Lando Calrissian is played in this issue by Saber. <laughs> asshole. He is an asshole, I agree. You can tell that he doesn't believe in what he's doing, but he does it anyway. He's the type of man who would sell out his friends to the Empire. He is an <laughs> asshole. I'm glad we're finally on the same page here. <sighs> so Saber, yeah, Saber, Saber's guys are in there whooping it up, and uh, Old Skull's just barging off in his own direction, and that leaves Mashula having to defend himself against two against one. Yeah, but you know, or is it exactly? You know, we we can't forget. You know, we've got Carmilla Frost and her uh, mutant buddy Grok still in the picture, and Grok comes in to save the day for Mashula. Yeah, I mean, without breaking a sweat, he grabs one of the guys from behind and just grabs him by the arm and just throws him into a pillar. And then we see Camilla, she's got a sword, and we saw a little bit of this on the splash page. I mean, she's not afraid to throw down. She's got some hand-to-hand skills, and she's definitely become a part of the free men. She is helping defend Mashula. I think Mashula's got a thing for her now. They're definitely hinting at some uh, some sparks between the two. So, yeah. And I I really wish I could see what would happen to the guy that uh, Grok smashed into the pillar because the way it's illustrated, it basically looks like he dissipated into a cloud of mist. That or he exploded. It looks like he hit that pillar so hard, he fucking exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think is what happened. You, we see this later on in the issue where if there's a violence done to a body, instead of drawing it out, they put this weird energy field around it, and that's that's what happened. You just see this arm hanging out of an explosion. <laughs> super weird. Maybe Grok's trying to pull him in from a teleportation field or something. Yeah, it's, it's like he got sucked into a hole, and he's trying to pull it back out. But uh, as funny as that is, we actually get a really nice panel with Mashula and Camilla where they share a moment. And she actually, this is like the first time, she actually looks like a person. She doesn't look deranged at all. No, she does not look completely psychotic. I like it. 
Yeah, Mashula goes to thank her, and he he doesn't know what to say, and she kind of comments on that, that they've made him this kind of sarcastic, flippant character, and that this is like the first time that she's ever seen him where he didn't know what to say. And she she seems surprised and touched by him trying to express some sort of emotion or sentiment to her, which is a great call. Like, this kind of calls back to last issue, where she regretted because of the Martian invasion, people couldn't allow themselves to be soft anymore. And they have kind of this quote, like soft moment. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It was nice. It was nice. But meanwhile, on the other side of the battlefield, old skull is, is just full on freaking berserker mode, just tearing through these guys. And it's not like he's not trying to kill them. He's just trying to get to kill Raven and whatever is in his way is just being battered aside. Like nothing. And there with the, the, how he's drawn, that side profile, and again, because he's wearing purple pants. If I put this against the panel from G.I. Joe, it would be hard for somebody to distinguish him from Dr. Mindbender. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he is just going through these people. And I, it, it, like you said, he's, it's almost like he's on autopilot. He's not even registering these are attackers. He's just knocking any obstacle out of his way to try to get to kill Raven. But it's too late. The tripods are too far, uh, have moved on too far. He can't, can't keep up. Yeah, even even old school has a limit to his endurance. So yeah. he, he's oddly oddly formal, <clears throat> calling him Mister Killraven, which seems to be his thing. Yeah, you know he he does seem a little sad, and that he just won't be able to catch up. I, I love on the next page we get the first uh, meeting between Mint Julep and Old Skull. I enjoy she calls him Whiskers. Yes, yes. And she introduces herself to him, and she can't just say Mint Julep. She can't just say her name. It's always, the name's Mint, Mint Julep. She has to do, like, the 007 introduction. You know, every time she does that, I just giggle. I can't help it. <laughs> such a stupid name. It's, She's such a cool character, and it's such a bad name. It's such a stupid name, and every time I hear it, I freaking giggle just a little bit, like a fucking schoolgirl. I think that's what's held her back from becoming a bigger part of the Marvel Universe. We had other characters from other dimensions join the Marvel Universe. You can't have her join the Avengers with a name like Mint Julep. You know, the Avengers would all laugh their asses off. As they should. As I will. <laughs> yes. So, anyway, apparently at least Mint Julep is a, a rather good motivational speaker. Uh, she she convinces Old Skull that, hey, you know what? We're going to get your friends. Just come with me and, you know, don't stand here moping around. She did what Mashula couldn't. She was able to talk sense into Old Skull. She convinces him he's being stupid and he's going to get himself killed going after Kill Raven by himself. And she reveals she thinks she knows where they took Kill Raven. I would say maybe some of this was due to her, her feminine wiles and she managed to convince him by batting her eyelashes at him or something like that. But that's clearly not the case because Old Skull's just too dumb to care about anything like that. He He's single-minded in his pursuit to want to rescue kill raven and and she wisely uses that as the as the lever to pry into his reasoning yep she's got good leadership skills she knows how to reason with people how to motivate people and again or we learn here that her gun that shoots the the silver stars is called a star piercer which like everything about mint julep except for her name is fucking cool Yes, exactly. So much about her is just 100% badass, except the name, which is like, why, guys? Why? I also like this page. Hawk says something. 
I don't think Hawk, I think maybe Hawk had one line last issue, and that's true to form, because this is the only line that Hawk gets, and it's completely irrelevant to the plot. Yeah. Just move right on. And, um, and again, you have that freaking, like, someone's getting some bodily harm done to them, and they have the weird energy field with an arm and a torso sticking out of it. Yeah, that was such a weird choice, and I wonder if that's going to be carried over for the, the next several issues, because it's just, it's, I wonder if there was some sort of mandate where, because we get to see, say, things that have been, been killed in battle later, but you don't get to see how they, they got those wounds. If this was something that editorial told them to do so it wouldn't be too violent. You you know the violence is happening, but it's not being drawn. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, just going back to Hawk, the last time he was important was when he had the acid splash on his face, and when they were ending that issue, they mentioned he needed some medical attention for that. That's never been fucking carried over since. The next issue, they were on a boat going to Washington, and nobody's mentioned, is Hawk okay? Is there any damage to his face? It's just totally forgotten about. Camilla's a doctor. I'm sure she uh, she helped him out. <laughs> she she just took a patch of skin off a of grok and... Oh, God. <laughs> yes, exactly. Absolutely no facilities whatsoever. She managed to do that. Uh, as they leave the Lincoln Memorial and they follow Mint Julep on their plan to develop a plan to get Kill Raven back, we see Lando on the steps of the uh, Lincoln <laughs> Memorial. Damn it, fucking asshole. What do you want me to call him? <laughs> Saber. Who is he, he dressed like? <sighs> Go on. <laughs> okay. And Lando salutes them as they as they have won because they've won his respect and he wishes he could possibly join them. But you know he was in a tough situation. He's fighting for his survival and he had a choice between doing the right thing or saving his people. And I feel like he made the wrong choice. That definitely does not remind me of another character from a popular sci-fi franchise. I don't know why I'm confusing this guy with Lando. You're an ass. <laughs> I don't I want say. to derail us anymore, but I would I would love for you to destroy my argument and say I'm wrong on any of it. I have never been more sure anything in my life. Yeah, you're and absolutely that, right. <laughs> I will concede. Thank yes. Thank you. Yes. Questionable judgment calls have been made aplenty in the life of Lando Calrissian, who's even not even in the public eye as of yet. Because if I recall correctly, this was made in seventy. Four, yep. And the first Star Wars came out in '77, and we didn't see Lando until what was it, 1980, 1981, in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, 1980. 1980. Okay. Yep. So, so yeah, I mean, they. I think that Marvel has a. Well, they they don't have a great lawsuit against Star Wars because that, that would be counterproductive. <laughs> at this point, yes. <laughs> How great would that be if there was a crossover where they could do it now, where Lando meets Saber? That would be hilarious. I, yeah. I would they, pay good they, money for that. They could talk about how hard it is to be a leader and make those tough calls that sell people down the river, and where they buy their pirate clothing. From. Yeah, exactly. They can talk about freaking how, how best to clean your uh, cape. Yeah, how to clean your mustache, how not to get your hands dirty. How to lose spaceships and card games. I mean, they, I'm sure they have a lot that they could converse about. Talking about space stuff, what is going on on this next page? Oh, I mean, my just, God. You don't read any of the like the word, and you just stare at that picture without any context. That is super weird. 
But uh, to not leave you guys in suspense, we cut back to Kill Raven. He's being held by two human guards in front of the White House. But they're in front of a giant, two-story tall mechanized being. And when you read what's going on, we learn that this is the High Overlord. This is the Head Martian, which I thought I'd understood the simple Martian hierarchy that the Martians, we've seen them. They all look pretty much the same. They're non-humanoid. They're, they look like mutant potatoes. This is a humanoid mechanized being I, that's in charge of them. Where did this come from? And I'm wondering if we get more explanation on that. I honestly don't know where they came from. I, you know, what, what just trapped my mind, though, is a freaking robot armor that he's got going on. It looks like his head it looks vaguely Japanese to me. It looks like a, like a Shogun's helmet. Yes. Yeah, it's a cool design. It's it's very 70s, but I mean, it's really cool. And the way he's drawn, and I don't know what it is in the right-hand corner of the page. It's some sort of device, but that and the Overlord, they actually, they're very Jack Kirbyan to me. I mean, it absolutely looks like something that Jack Kirby would have, would have drawn, say, with the New Gods when he was in D- at DC. It's really cool. And the Overlord... Some parts of his design remind me from Marvel of the Celestials. It's really cool. I, I'm hoping that we learn more of, is he like a mutated Martian in like battle armor? Because we learned a few issues ago, they were trying to adopt Martian physiology to a form that could better survive on Earth. And I'm wondering if they perfected it, and he's the, because he's the leader, he's the first Martian to get that, or if he's something totally different. Yeah, yeah, because you, know, you wonder about the mechanics of how they they got his soft egg-shaped rotund little mass into the torso of this thing yeah or if it's just a giant battle suit exactly yeah i i'm hoping we learn more about this because yeah i am that that immediately captured my imagination and i've been thinking of like different scenarios of of how the martian government works and the hierarchy but yeah really neat right well i'm sure you know the martian government uh in the white house uh, has the nice hierarchy on the upper floors, but down in the basement, down in the basement is the uh, layer of attack. How does the Overlord fit in the White House? Through the front door. I don't think the front door is like 30 feet tall. Uh, I'm sure they have a cargo entrance. Okay, it just it seems like it it's a weird place for him to use as his seat of power because it's not built to a scale that he could readily move through it. Well, maybe that's just his, like, you know, Sunday battle suit. It's a little, little large. Maybe he's got a battle suit for Monday through Saturday. It's, you know, more more to scale of a normal human being. Or maybe if it is some sort of, like, battle armor, the Martian inside it just comes out of it and goes into the, the White House. I don't know. I'm hoping we get this answered. If you know, write into the comic book or write into us at our email address, comicbookdungeonpodcast.com, with the subject battle armor, because I would love to know what's going on. I, I think it has a flap on its buttocks that freaking poops him out. <laughs> that would be great. I would love to see an illustration of that. <laughs> that would be, yeah, I would like to see that too. As funny as we're making this, this is actually a pretty dramatic moment for Kill Raven. We we saw some of this last issue. We learned that the Martian subordinates they eat a lot of the slaves that they buy at the slave market, and that they wanted to eat Kill Raven. 
but like we learned uh, a few, couple pages ago, they recognize the political value of Killraven. They recognize that to the human slaves, Killraven has become a legend that brings hope, and to the collaborators, he brings terror, so they want to publicly execute him to destroy the legend he's become. My question is, if he's so famous that everybody, when they televise his death, would, would be... Would, would be saddened by that. If he's so famous, how come last issue neither Saber nor Mint Julep knew who he was? Well, he's only famous in the Martian circles. You know, he's got a very limited audience. Well, by that, maybe maybe people on the outskirts of the fringe don't necessarily know who he is. Right. I mean, a word can only travel so far and so fast, and the fastest network would be the Martian network, so I'm sure all the Martians know who he is. And it's, you know, word of him is slowly leaking out to the slave population bit by bit. So I, I'm behind this right now. So far in this issue, everything that's happened, I'm, I'm behind. This is for me where it starts to go a little bit off the rails. They're planned, because I, I get it. You want to make an example of Kill Raven. You want to show what happens to anybody who dares defy the Martians. I get that you want an execution. They're going to stake him below the White House and let the blood-starved scavengers of Ratak kill him. What a stupid fucking plan. It seems like they watched one too many Bond movies. What I, I can't understand. It, Ratak's relationship with the Martians isn't made clear this issue, but he definitely doesn't seem to be like a willing, knowledgeable agent of the Martians. It just see, he just seems to be some like weird guy they let live in the basement with his two foot long twenty pound rats. So that just even seems weird that they would tolerate vermin's presence in their and their their seat, their seat of power on Earth. But instead of coming up with the, a plan where their agents are going to make Kill Raven suffer, they get Ratak to do it. It just for me it just didn't come together as a a solid plan. I mean, I, they're aliens. They're going to have an alien mindset, but tolerating a foreign plant, uh, a foreign group in their in, in, underneath their their seat of power, and then just letting him have the kill, just it, it, to me, it just seems stupid. All right, it, it does seem stupid, but uh, you know, you kind of got to remember first and foremost that one thing that's been consistently said about the Martians, or implied at the very least, is that they enjoy watching people brutally die for sport it's like a national pastime for them maybe there's some wish fulfillment since they're not going to be able to eat kill raven they're watching something else eat kill raven there you go but again kill raven is true to form he's defiant and he refuses to yield to the margin yep he's he's doing his kill raven thing standing tall and trying to win back humanity's lost legacy this next page is where the issue just completely jumps off the rails for me. Yes, I like hearing a humanoid rat monologue in my head. What is he doing down there? It looks like he's taking a shit. We cut to below the White House, and we see Ratak. Just such a stupid... Like, like that's what they, you would name a He-Man character. <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm being negative on that, but there he is. His face doesn't look rat-like to me. He's wearing his mechanized, like, wonder bra... Which, again, I don't have any explanation on why a human-rat hybrid would be wearing that. And he's just sitting in this room next to a slide projector. And we learn that he was down here in the catacombs below the White House. He used to be an agent for the federal government. And when, the, or when we were fighting back against the Martians, 
and we attacked them with the biochemical weapons, they affected him. And this predicted Master Splinter. So this is 11 years before Ninja Turtles. We have somebody who was hit with some sort of mutating agent and because of his proximity to a rat, becomes a rat. And so he mentions he's in this meeting room and this is where big decisions used to be made. And now he's in this room, he's looking at a slideshow. The slideshow is of himself. Who has a slideshow of themselves just in front of different areas of Washington, D.C.? Not like he's doing his job or he's on vacation. He's just sitting in several of them, like, say, with his arms folded, looking angry. And I, why is, like, he's on a street that's deserted. He's in front of, like, the Capitol building that's deserted. I have no idea why anybody, because presumably he had, presumably he had this with him when the apocalypse occurred, would just have this random slideshow of themselves looking, look at emo teenager angry being on a family vacation. Why he would have dozens or so of those slides, and now why he's just looking at pictures of himself at different uh, locations, looking angry to be there. I just, I have no idea what the fuck is going on there, or why when somebody wrote this and drew that, thought that that's something that anybody would ever do, or have. Do you have random, like, slides or pictures of yourself looking angry at completely random and arbitrary locations? Is that something that you would revisit? multiple times in the future okay yeah when i was a teenager i went through this like really like uh gothy almost you know always wear black with combat boots like uh the crow phase and i took some uh some self-portraits with the camera that i for i wish i could find the film and burn because my younger sister constantly likes to print them up and show anybody she can in front of me <laughs> oh yeah my, mind you i was like ah she's maybe 15 16 and uh, I had a rat tail haircut and a really shitty mustache. So, yeah, I, I, I can see, you know, and, and they, those poses, well, granted, they, they were arms folded. They were uh, trench coat wings spread wide. But I was looking really <laughs> angry in them. <laughs> you would think that this is something, say, like a 40-year-old federal agent would have grown out of. I mean, I... And, like you said, you were embarrassed by those pictures. Apparently, he carried them around with him everywhere he went, and now he just looks at them <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> Maybe it's to show him what decisions he shouldn't make. <laughs> it's a warning. <laughs> Why are you standing there looking so pissed off, man? Have a good time. No wonder those rats are so angry and attack anything. It's because that's... Their entertainment for the last, like, 15 years has just been this guy showing them the same slides of, like, here's me in front of Denny's. Here's uh, me on the sidewalk of the li- part of the library. I mean, it's just, it's the most arbitrary and clumsy way to to convey this, this person's backstory. And it just, for me, it just smashed, like, the momentum of this issue into a brick wall. Yeah. Like how I have slam the momentum of this podcast into a brick wall to make fun of this for eight minutes. It's just, it's so ridiculous. Or it's like when your Aunt Marge comes back from her vacation in Bora Bora with a freaking big daisy wheel full of slides and she makes everyone in your family stop and watch it. At least she's conveying, like, this is what I did on my vacation. This is when I went parasailing. Like, this is where I uh, fell on the waiter. I mean, there's, (laughs) there's stories that she's telling. This is just him doing nothing in a just 
picture in front of nothing. This is me it's looking just, tough in front of someplace. This is me looking <laughs> tough in front of someplace else. And this is me looking tough in front of someplace that's not the first two places. And like you said, we didn't get an onomatopoeia when a Martian got injured, which is the first time we've seen that happen so far in an issue. But we get the click onomatopoeia for every time he, he moves the slideshow forward. But, yeah. But I'm sorry that I've... I totally derailed the podcast because of how stupid this page is. We can, I guess, we can keep on going unless, unless I missed anything here. No, no, no. And much like when Art Margie came back with those slideshows, that page is putting me to sleep too. <laughs> yeah. Which we, we're, the next page is actually pretty cool because we Mint Julep takes them to their uh, to to her headquarters, her and her free women's headquarters, which is the fucking Pentagon. Yeah, that's that, cool. that's fucking legit right there. That's totally awesome. Yeah. Which again, where is uh, where is Kill Raven's headquarters? Staten Island. Where is Mint Julep's? The fucking Pentagon. She is a better Kill Raven than Kill Raven on all <laughs> yes. accounts. Okay. In every metric you could use, she is more of a badass. Yeah. I, I can't even tell you about Staten Island. There's comics that freaking say Staten Island should just sink back into the fucking ocean. And people on yeah. Staten Island agree. She's just kicking ass and taking names. She, uh, When they get to the Pentagon, she reveals that they took Kill Raven to the White House. I like that Mishula makes fun of how Old Skull talks and kind of shames him a little bit, which is not okay. But, hey, we're going to move past that. <laughs> you know what I noticed, though? What's that? Uh, uh, Mashula has not been talking in, in a manner that I would expect Jive Turkey to be at the end of every sentence. Yeah, it feels like he experimented with that, the writer, a little bit, and it just it didn't fit the character. Or maybe he feels it didn't, it didn't fit the character, it didn't fit the character's voice. So yeah, they definitely tone this, at least this issue, the slang back down. Yeah, well, I, I noticed it a little bit last issue, too, where he was talking with Carmilla. He wasn't, you know... He wasn't putting on as big of a of a front as they have been putting him on in other situations. Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping that's a permanent change. Me too. It it didn't really add anything to the story. There's no reason for them to, in a book that takes place in the future, to fall back on those stupid uh, stereotypes. Right. I do like talking about uh, <laughs> how Mashula talks. He calls Mint Julep Lady, which. She she does not she just does not mince words with. She informs him if he does that again, she will cleave his tongue down the middle. That'll which, make him really fun at parties. <laughs> I heard he could tie a cherry stem with his tongue. Now he can do two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure one day we we should save that story for a, a different podcast. Oh Dude. God, yes. You can tell she means business. Mashula can tell she means business, and she doesn't te- or he doesn't test her on that. She set a limit, and yet he just he calls her. He almost slips up, but yet he just calls her Mint Julep from now on. Yeah, uh, Mashula's definitely uh, learned a lot about how to interact with the ladies in this episode. I'm wondering if it's so much that he learned anything, or if he's actually he seems to be a lot better at interacting in general with people than Kill Raven. Yeah, I think I met a couple rocks that were better interacting with people than Kill Raven. Yeah, he's just, he does not motivate people to do what he wants them to do, which is what a good leader does. But man, Min Julep has just stepped in without missing a beat and has just assumed leadership of the free men and just guiding them along to their objective, just moving the story along. So yeah, I mean, she is kicking ass. But yeah, she tells them she knows that they took Kill Raven to the White House. Yep. And then they're they're gonna start to uh, plan uh, plan his escape. 
Exactly. The next page, we skip back to Kill Raven. We learn that people will grew complacent and bored before the Martians took over, and they invented something. Uh, they invented something, unfortunately named the mural phonics system. Right. Yeah, give, give, give a brief Why? description of what you think this thing is, and I will tell you where where my mind jumped to once I finished that description. What I thought it was, when, or what it what the issue describes it as being. How about both? Okay, what it describes it as being is it's a, it's it's much like TV, but instead of just images, it transmits semi tangible images and emotions. So I, you're, I think you're going to get sensory information like sight, smell, maybe even taste. It says the image is semi tangible, so you might get some sort of hologram experience where you can actually smell it and experience it, almost like maybe a hologram or a holodeck from Star Trek. Mm. I don't know how you get that from Mural Phonics system. What did you think of with Mural Phonics? <laughs> Do you remember the movie Demolition Man? Yes. There's a scene where Sandra Bullock and Sylvester Stallone go to have sex, and she throws on this like VR headset-looking thing. And, and basically, it's a, a series of uh, images of the two of them. I'm not going to say copulating, but it, 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 it's like like a really bad rave scene you know there's a lot of bright flashing lights and a lot of a lot of images and a lot of things to insinuate that he's feeling something while he's immersed in this device and that's kind of what i felt like this uh, mural sonic freaking deal is in uh, kill raven you know i'm still waiting for the three shells i know how do you use the three shells i can't tell you i saw that as a kid I wish I tried to make sense of that in my mind. You know, I kept wondering, I mean, like, there's there's, there's so many ways you could think about using, like, you take two shells and spread the cheeks apart, maybe pinch whatever residue in the middle, <laughs> but that could really hurt. Or if you spread the cheeks apart and you scrape front to back, you know, that could really be awkward, too. There's no way, however, you use the three, sh- three shells, you're not getting feces all over your head. <laughs> it's pink eye waiting to happen. Oh, God, Yes. I don't know. I can't hear the word phonics without thinking of the from the the, the early '90s, the hooked on phonics commercials. Oh God! So mural phonics. I'm like, man, it's going to be something that's going to. I it is what I would imagine if you gave me the words mural phonics. It's a picture on a wall that will help someone to read. Yeah, and that's stupid. And I know it's stupid, but I have no idea why. If it's like a hologram system that lets you experience what Kill Raven's experiencing, and to see it in, like, three-dimensional terms, which is what it's implying? Why, how do you get mural phonics as a, as a shorthand for that? It makes no fucking sense to me. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that in the 1974, somebody was taking a stab at, like, say, uh, an interactive hologram that gives sensory information back to the user. Right. It's a really cool sci-fi concept that they're, I think, is kind of advanced for sci-fi of, the, of that day. So that's cool they envisioned it, but they gave it the worst name. So, like, have you ever seen the, the Simpsons? There's a Simpsons episode where Principal Skinner's talking about he wants to write his great American novel, and he describes Jurassic Park, and he gives it the name instead of Jurassic Park, Billy and the Clonosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> Same shit. Good story, or good, 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 good idea, terrible name. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, basically, along with that, it it, it seems that the, what is he, the Master Overlord? 
Superior, supreme Overlord, whatever. High Overlord. High Overlord. Not to be confused with, or, or the, yeah, the High Overlord, not to be confused with the Warlord from several issues back. Yeah, I just called him the big fucking Gobot in my head. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> so anyway, the, the big Gobot is basically trying to do a, a running man on this guy. You know, he's broadcast, he wants to broadcast his, his death to everybody. Again, I'm on board with the plan here of, we. I didn't know that this technology existed, but then sending something to the slave pits, the, the breeder pens, the slave areas, to what they say, the slave quarters, the breeding pens, and the science labs, to all their human subjects, to not only let them see, but experience Kill Raven's horrible demise. I agree that's a good plan. I just the way they're they're implementing his death, I thought left a little bit to be desired. But yeah, good plan to use a something to even let them experience his terror. That's cool. It's a little scary, and again, that's a great idea for the the a comic book from the mid seventies. Yeah, I, I agree, and uh, yeah, I also agree that the stupid freaking like Bond level methods of how they plan on killing him are are ridiculous. They should have just fucking lopped his head off right there. Yeah, I mean, the Warlord, several issues back, was uh, he knew Kill Raven was too dangerous to keep alive. Yeah, they're doing too much, like you said, this Bond villain, like, toying with him. But they, they're strapping him down to a table, and we learn he injured ten guards uh, in the process of them strapping him down. And to be sadistic, they took Kill Raven's sword, and they're dangling it in front of him where he can't get to it. Mm-hmm. And I originally had thought that they had drawn his sword inconsistently with how it was originally drawn. But when I went back and compared it to the, when he lifts it from the museum, no, it's, it's absolutely identical. So that's a good continuation through the, the issues. Same basic design still. Right. So let's see. Kill Raven is defiant. He took out 10 guards as they strapped him down. Yep, And he's constantly, he's getting teased by the sword hanging nearby. And I, I think Kill Raven realizes he's in a, a bit of a pickle here. He he definitely realizes he's he's in some shit now, but he uh, he's not going to give any outward indication that he's fearful. We also, when they're talking about how the they're going to broadcast it out, the Overlord says that he he wants to make sure that Saunders and Yellowstone especially receives the broadcast. And apparently, Saunders is a name that Killraven recognizes, right? Because he yells out Saunders. But we don't get any sort of uh, explanation on that. I think he was so a I'm big wondering... fan of KFC. KFC. <laughs> I think that would be Sanders. And nobody's a fan of KFC. Okay, right on both points. I was just trying to be funny. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we're going to investigate who this Saunders is in the next few issues. I bet this is a bit of a foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. He's definitely not a colonel. The next few pages we get... Uh, the rats slowly mm. approaching Kill Raven. They do a good job, I think, of building the tension. They do. They, they, they do add an element of suspense to that page. Kill Raven, uh, you can see he's starting to sweat because he's nervous, but he's not yelling out. He's not doing anything to more than, you know, he can't control his body's automatic or automatic uh, functioning. So he's not, he's trying not to show his fear here. But, I mean, we see the rats are surrounding his table now. And these are huge rats. One is listed on his chest. That The one that one on his chest, they say it weighs 20 pounds. They leap onto Kill Raven. 
he they they describe their un, underbellies as warm and obscene, which is a cool description. Uh, yes, that uh, was definitely very cool because uh, yeah, underbellies and animals are generally warm, and if it's a foul, filthy, stinky ass rat, I would guess it felt a little obscene too. Yeah, I bet it's a little bit moist. And you know, it's pressing right up against his nipples because he he doesn't have a complete shirt on. <laughs> There's got to be some confusing sensations going on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's partially aroused, but he's also frightened for his life. He's very confused right now. Yeah. He's a confused young man. Or Kill Raven. <laughs> we flash back to, to Mint Julep, and because she's Mint Julep, she has a fucking kick-ass plan to get to Kill Raven. Right. She has a plan so, to out-Kill Raven's any Kill Raven plan. Yeah, absolutely. So they're below the Pentagon. She introduces the group to things called Dino Gliders. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous name. But there, there's tunnels underneath the Capitol, and there are these hover cars that can travel back and forth. And she explains that political VIPs used to use the, them in these tunnels to move around un, uh, unobserved. So they're going to use it to go from the Pentagon to the White House. Yeah, can we take a quick look at this? I mean, if you look at the parallels between Mint Julep and Kill Raven's past missions. Kill Raven needs to find a vehicle. He finds a busted out freaking deuce and a half that's probably pretty worthless, or he finds a freaking tugboat that gets destroyed. Either which way, he finds a relatively mundane mode of transport that just sucks. Mint Julep finds fucking flying cars. Her plan isn't improvised. Or we're just gonna run at everything and hit and, and and try to hit it hard while I make stream of consciousness speeches about freedom. Her plan here is, I mean, she knows exactly where he is, how to get there, how to get there unobserved. This is a well thought out operation, and she realizes she seems familiar with the operation of these cars. She probably uses these quite often to move around undetected through Washington. She offers, as a good leader would, to drive Mashula's car because he wouldn't know how to operate them. But nope, Mashula's not. He's channeling Kill Raven. <laughs> he can't have any of that. And I love this. He's like, I've seen Kill Raven drive a car before. He's operated machinery. I must have learned how to operate machinery through it, too, through some sort of process of osmosis. Exactly. So he's like, I've seen Kill Raven drive something. I can do it. I can drive my own car. Yeah, you just push one lever with your foot and you make that wheel go round and round. You're good to go. <laughs> we actually get a nice panel here, too, of uh, Grok is afraid to get in the car. And Camilla is very, I would say, even tender how she's trying to calm him down. And we learn that he's in some sort of agony that never ends and it's all Camilla's fault. And she definitely feels a lot of remorse for for Grok and some sort of past things that have gone on between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a little... You get it, You get to see a little bit more character development out of uh, Camilla this issue, and it's it's nice. Yeah, they're definitely selling her as a sympathetic character. She, she came on as a collaborator, and we're learning some of her motivations, that maybe not everybody working for the Martians is... It's their choice that she was a prisoner in some ways as much as as the other humans, and that she's she's working hard to to be a part of the free men. They're, they're definitely selling her as a sympathetic character. Our merry men take off, and uh, Mashula is uh, doing a crack job at his driving. The onomatopoeia is great. Free! 
Yuck! Walker. As he's yeah, he's all over the place because of course he doesn't know how to drive it. And again, with the theory that she that Mint Julep's a better Kill Raven than Kill Raven, she slit she slips right into the role that Kill Raven had of kind of shit talk back and forth between her and Mashula. They they give each other a hard time here. He makes fun of Mint Julep. He says, "That's what I like about you. What your sense of humor." Because he's being facetious. Because she absolutely has not shown any sense of humor, but I like that it's, it very much parallels his interactions with Kill Raven when they're kind of talking shit back and forth to each other. Exactly. So, back to Kill Raven. Yeah, which he is not in a good spot. No, he's he's an hors d'oeuvre for, a, what do you call them? All, uh, a, is it a pack of rats? <laughs> uh, I think we might have to look that up. I know, for my research into the Willard movie, that a large group where they live would just be called a rat nest. Mm-hmm. But now you're now you're making me want to look this up. Okay, you you go on. I'm gonna look this up. We're gonna do this live. <laughs> Whatever you call a pack of rats, where they are now is they're at the Kill Raven buffet. It's very clear in the description here. They are clawing at Kill Raven. <laughs> they are biting at Kill Raven. Kill Raven is getting eaten right now by these rats. They're tearing and biting. And he's, again, trying not to react, but, I mean, they are literally eating him now. There's one on his chest. Again, they described it as 20 pounds. Yeah, what, do you call, <laughs> what do you call a pack of rats? Okay, okay, okay. Uh, hold on. I, this, I laughed so hard, and everyone's trying to sleep here. So <laughs> this is great. I'm sorry, we're derailing a little bit. Okay, so male rats are called bucks. Unmated females are called does. Pregnant or parent females are called dams, and infant rats are called kittens or pups. A group of rats? Tell me, you, what do you think a group of rats is called? Give me your best shot. Kittens. No, a group of rats is called a mischief. <laughs> I fucking swear. I'm calling fake news. I swear. It's fake dude. news. It, You're fake it's news. It's on Wikipedia. It's got to be true. <laughs> so, this mischief of rats... <laughs> Is devouring Kill Raven, but that's that's okay because as these rats are clawing and biting at Kill Raven, they've also clawed at one of his restraints. He's able to get his hand free and grab a torch. And even though the way he bur- he grabs onto it, he burns his hand. He doesn't let that slow him down. So now he's hitting these these rats with this flaming torch. So now there's burning rats in this uh, on top of Kill Raven, and I can only imagine what that smells like with their burning moist fur. Oh, that's gotta smell so horrible. But yeah, I mean, you've seen before. All Kill Raven needs is a freaking free limb of some sort, and he can wreak havoc. He's able to. He's he's got the rats now on the defensive. They jump off of him because he's setting them on fire. He's able to free himself and attack. Being the buck that he is, he's pissed <laughs> that Kill Raven has attacked some of his mischief. So, which he's so angry that Kill Raven has maimed some and murdered others. So his solution is to send more rats at the guy who has a torch and now has his sword. So if he's mad at any of his rats being injured, any of his mischief. He's just sent them like lambs to the slaughter. Yeah, and I gotta say, this illustration of Rattack looks like absolute trash. His head almost looks like a Martian there with little Ewok ears sticking out. I mean, it's it's really shitty. 
Yeah, they did a piss poor about job. That character, yeah, none of that character, anything about him makes sense. It's like they added him into the story as an afterthought. It's just like Roy Thomas said, the story doesn't make any sense. Why are the rats attacking? Right. There's a rat guy who, secret agent, who is in charge of them. Brilliant. Add it to the story. I mean, it just, it doesn't seem like it helps the issue flow. And instead, all Retac does is draw attention away from the story and derail it. Yeah, I, I think I think it would have been better if his line would have been, get them, my pretties. <laughs> This whole page is kind of a clusterfuck because that next panel, it mentions how Killraven's wrists are scratched, his body drips with dark gore. There is not any damage to Killraven there. There's no, he's not bleeding, he's not, his clothes aren't even ripped. I mean, he looks like he just stepped in off the street, but yet he's, the, the, the caption is telling us he should be dripping with gore. Yeah. And then in the next panel, it's that same thing we said before where he's cutting these rats in half, but you don't get to see it. You see him swinging his sword, and then where it impacted the rats, it almost looks like Nightcrawler is teleporting his bamp instead of seeing the, the actual act of violence done. It's a very weird effect. I, I just can't get over the uh, animation on this one. It doesn't, look, it, it doesn't look like it makes very much sense as, as to how he's managed to chop all these rats up. No, it's it's definitely some of the fight scenes we've seen in Killraven, very you can tell they put a lot of thought into the body movements and how it the, the image flows. And I mean this there's just random rats in the air like they're jumping supposedly jumping at them and now they're just bisected by like like again it looks exactly like Nightcrawler's bamping effect. <laughs> and yes, exactly. It takes you so much out of the action to see these weird effects around the, their, their bodies. I don't, I don't know why they went with that. Again, I, I'm wondering if that's supposed to be kind of shielding from the actual act of violence. I, I don't know. And you wonder if those rats all just jumped in the way of his sword. You know, they, they saw the sword and they just jumped up like, you know, maybe they're jumping rope or something like that, and they just all perfectly lined up to be killed in one swipe. They couldn't stand seeing another fucking boring slide. They <laughs> their way out. It's quick and it was painless. True, true. And and Rattack apparently sees the error of his ways and issues a tactical withdrawal. They clearly saw Kill Raven's sword as some sort of Kevorkian. And they're, <laughs> out. they're out. You're right. Uh, I do I do enjoy Kill Raven here taunting the Overlord now that he's free, and he hopes that the show he's putting on that everyone's getting their money's worth. Yeah, yeah. At the very end of this issue, he definitely throws out a couple of one-liners and makes a couple of jabs at the uh, the uh, Master Overlord or whatever the hell his name is. Yeah, I hope he appreciates how much he got zinged by Gilroy. I'm sure he does, and it continues on that kind of running man feel. He he's showing the audience like, yeah, you better stay tuned because I'm gonna fucking show you some real shit now. He's kicking ass. He's showing everybody why he's a legend. The smartest thing that uh, any of the villains have done in this issue is attack. He just realizes if I stay here, more of my rats are gonna be hurt. So he just cuts his losses and he he's out. Yeah, that I, who knew that the freaking rodent one was the smartest enemy character. Yeah, he, he definitely had a good read of that situation. He just, he just cuts his losses. At this point, this is where the free men rush in, and we get another speech by Killraven. He informs the High Overlord that legends don't die with the death of one man, and that even if they did manage to kill him, his death won't stop humanity. That, he, that Martians started this war of the worlds, but Earth's going to finish it. 
Yep, and he leaves us with that fantastic monologue. He explains once they win the war that the only thing that they can do at that point is once they've sent the uh, Martians packing, they're going to build a wall around the Earth. Don't you dare. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be transparent, you know, so light can still come in. It's going to be a transparent wall, but he's going to build that wall. He's going to build that wall, so... <laughs> okay, he, he's not. Kill Raven realizes that uh, walls don't make any uh, uh, have not been an effective military uh, military deterrent, or really even more than a boundary on a map for more than five hundred years, and they don't really make sense anymore. Of course, Kill Raven would realize that with his uh, he's self educated off of the four books that he read. So of course he would, you know, anybody would know that. But I'm again on a tangent. No, no, um, you, you're on the right track. Killraven realizes that the best way to secure his place in the world is to uh, leave a lot of, uh, give a lot of tax breaks to corporations and to heavily tax the middle class. I'm gonna heavily uh, tax the the slave pens, but then the, uh, <laughs> but I'm gonna give these breaks to the 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 scientists and the slave owners. And they're going to use that to put money back into the slave economy. And it's not like he's going to need that much money because the Earth wall, Mars is going to pay for it. Right. And see, they're going to pay for it because it's all going to trickle down. And we're just going to take all that and put it into the wall. Which, but again, we don't need to because the Mar- he's, he's gotten verbal assurances that the Martians will pay for the wall. <laughs> And, the but, space wall. <laughs> this is the end of the issue. Next week, or the next uh, issue, for He's a Jolly Dead Rebel, and it's New Year's Eve 2019 style. Ooh. I have to say, I envy them being in 2019, because they're almost to the... They're, if they had an election, they'd be at that 2020 election. Ah, uh, yeah. I can hear the narrator now. It's 2019. And no one expected this. The earth is in flames. Martians have ruled. And America has had a Cheeto for a president. There's so much political exposition that Don McGregor has been putting into the story. And that's just because he's disillusioned with 1973 America. I would love to see what 1973 Don McGregor thought of uh, of America 2017. <laughs> he's going to be like, you have got to be fucking kidding me, right? His, his head would just explode. Which would not be covered on his health insurance plan. And you wouldn't be able to see it because it would just look like a freaking, you know, a a BAMF, a Nightcrawler teleportation or something. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It'd be too violent for the kids to see. Exactly. I do want to just mention briefly, I know we said we weren't going to cover the backup story. It's called The Face of Fear. And I had to laugh because the very first panel has rats. They carried over that rat scene. Yes. But the story, here, I'll sum it up. One sentence. It's super lame. This guy is so ugly, he becomes a hermit. But it turns out he's the only person on the planet that looks normal and everybody else is a hideous monster. That sounds familiar because that was one of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone where the woman, everybody says how hideous she is. But no, she was really beautiful and everybody else looks like a bad 60s makeup monster. (laughs) The end. Exactly. So... I so enjoyed our Kill Raven runs so far. Every episode has gotten better, and I felt that this one was kind of a, a clunker. 
this week. Yeah, yeah, it was too short. It, it really didn't cover anything meaningful. And I think like, maybe that's the biggest objection I had to it is that there really wasn't anything of meaning in in this issue. And, you know, the, the aside of like the one soft moment between Mashula and Carmilla, everything else was just, eh. you know, there was there's there's nothing that freaking drove the story forward or anything. We met the Martian High Overlord, and we learned some guy named Saunders. Yeah, the Gobot. The way that they handled the storytelling, it just it felt a little bit clumsy. And I'm wondering if there was something that just they they ran up against the deadline and they just kind of threw together what they had. Or I've really enjoyed Don McGregor on this book. I've really enjoyed every issue of Amazing Adventures, uh, The War of the Worlds. But yeah, this one just. It didn't feel like the other issues. Like you said, it just... There was no so what to it. There was no bigger moment. Right, yeah. So, yeah, uh, well, yeah coming next week, we'll be going over uh, the next issue in Amazing Adventures, uh, GoBot number one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever... If you know what the Micronauts are, he looked very GoBot or Microbots-esque. Right. That just won't roll off the tongue. Just, I don't know why. Well, maybe because it's like 4 a.m. where you're at. It is, but that's okay. Yep, we can keep going. You know what time it is? It's whatever time the listener is listening. This is true. Well, you know, what month is it right now? It's whatever month uh, the listener is listening to this, except, of course, it's really Punish Sember. So we're in our first issue of coverage for Punish Sember. Very excited. Yes. You know, I, I as mentioned earlier, I, I used to read Punisher way back in the day, not like with any sort of a conviction, but every time I stumbled across the path of Frank, Frank Castle in my comic book readings, he was almost always guaranteed to be a marvelously fun and bloody time. So dipping my toes back into the Punisher for Punish Vember, or Punish Semper, I should say, it was uh, definitely a welcome treat. I've been a long-term fan of The Punisher. I had a friend growing up who was a huge Punisher fan. His name was Jacob, and he would let me read some of his Punisher comics. Or when we'd hang out on the playground, he would talk to me a lot about a lot of the stories. And it really introduced me to The Punisher, and I've read a lot of Punisher stuff since then. It's hard to think of a bad Punisher story, and it was a real treat to go into these holiday specials. Right. And so for the to kick off Punish Sember, we're reading The Punisher, Silent Night, which published December 15th, 2005. The cover was by Mike Diodate, uh, or Diodate, kind of a confusing name. The interior letter was Randy Gentile, writer Andy Diggle, penciler Kyle Hutz, and colorist is Jose Villarubia. Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, these were these were some harder names than Kill Raven usually throws at me, so I'm sorry if I butchered them. Love this cover. This cover it's got Kill or it's got Kill, <laughs> it's got the Punisher yeah. dressed as Santa. You can see he's got the beard pulled off, and you can see the skull peeking out of his robe, so you can recognize who he is. He's got a pistol on his belt. He's got a he's in front of a fireplace. He's got a kid on his knee. You can see a Christmas tree. And then there's a, you can see there's a body in Santa's bag. So this is absolutely showing you what you're going to get. 
a lot of fun. Yeah, you're gonna get a lot of fun out of this one, and a lot of a uh, a lot of Christmas time, and uh, a lot. I'm not gonna say a lot of bodies, but you know, you definitely get to see some bodies. Yeah, and I can understand why people wouldn't follow around, uh, follow along with us with Kill Raven because they're hard to find. But if you guys have Marvel Unlimited, you can go read this for free right now. So uh, I know we don't normally call out the pages with Kill Raven. I thought maybe if we make more of an effort at that, if you wanted to follow along with us page for page, this would be a good time to pause the podcast, get out your tablet or your smartphone or your laptop or whatever, and you can pull this up right now and read along with us for free. <laughs> if you have Marvel Unlimited. You could probably get this on Comixology, too, for probably a few dollars. So, Or you might have this in your back issue bin. Whatever, this is a very easy comic to come across. I think this is a good opportunity to actually, instead of listening us to read a story that you've probably never read before or heard before, this is absolutely one that's very accessible. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a good uh, cold open for me to jump into and uh, get re-familiarized with Frank Castle. So much of the Punisher stuff is good because it's, it's not as continuity-heavy as other characters. It's really easy just to pick a starting point and jump right in. Yeah. This one starts off in, in the winter. It's, of course, New York City. It's way too cold. It's punish Sember. Yes, it's punish Sember. Yeah, we're, uh, we're looking at the Hudson River, the warehouse district. We see Frank Castle, the Punisher, if you didn't know. I usually just refer to him as Frank because uh, I, I believe in brevity. He's up on a roof. He's got a sniper rifle, and you can see he's... He talks about dressing warmly. Warmly, he's uh he's ready to, to put in some work here. Yep, he is toasty warm, watching uh, watching his targets from a good distance away. I, I like the uh, splash screen with all the credits on it, where yeah, it shows him. Yeah, it gives you a look at him from the front as he's laying down on this roof, and there's a smokestack behind him, and the smoke's coming out in the shape of a. It looks like a skull, but it. it I don't know if the, how much detail they went into it because if you look kind of closely, some of it looks like faces in the smoke in the skull. I don't, I don't know. It looks awesome though. I, I guess it, it, it it's looks, a Rorschach fucking drawing. Okay, I'm reading way too much into it. It's definitely a skull, and then, like you said, if you look into it, it's hard to see if those are faces or what. But it's like you said, it's really cool looking. We see that what what originally looked like a sniper rifle, he's got an M4. Which is more of a you know in a, a military assault rifle, but he's got it rigged with a sight, a tripod, and a silencer. And he talks about he went with the M4 because it's a better all-around multi-purpose weapon. Yeah, yep. Yeah, well, definitely, you never know when you're, what you're going to need when you're putting in work. Yeah. Oh, I, we, I wasn't calling up page numbers, so that's page three. We go to page four, uh, where we see the Punisher. He uh, he again. We talked about why he had chose the M4. We learned that the the reason he's here, he was uh, interrogating an informant by breaking his fingers, and he learned that this location, there's a meeting going on. There, were, it, we we learned that there's a uh, a crate there that has merchandise that he's been keeping his eye on. Mm-hmm. He wonders if he should have broken more fingers <laughs> that he this <laughs> uh, that he might be in the wrong place when a black Mercedes pulls up. Yep, that's how he knows he's got his man. Yep, he he's ready to take a shot, and whoever wrote this knows a little bit about shooting. They, he talks about how he waits to to exhale his breath instead of holding his breath, ready to take the shot. We're on to page five. 
Frank decides not to take the shot. He recognizes the goons. They belong to a mobster by the name of Junior Calavani. Not sure if that's right, how to pronounce it. Calavani, Calavani. Uh, Let's say Calavani. I'm from Um, Brooklyn, I can tell you. It's Calavani. Okay, it's Junior Calavani. Junior has been lying low since he took over for his... uh, the, 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 the mob business from his father. His father father was betrayed by his consigliere who turned state's evidence. What? Uh, cons- say that again? How would you pronounce that? Consigliere? What? That's, what? No. Consigliere? Is that really how you yeah, I don't know. I'm just throwing on the fakest Italian well, accent I, I can. Okay, consigliere. Oh, I've heard this. I've heard this word before, like in mob movies, and I always thought it was being mispronounced. But then seeing it in writing, it's C O N S I G L I E R S. Consigliere's. Hey, <laughs> if there's anybody who's a mobster or an Italian, and I'm not linking both of those, but if there's, this is very much an Italian word, if anybody wants to correct us on this, I have no idea. I am not from New York. And I'm not a mobster. I don't know much Italian. And again, I'm not saying that all mobsters are Italians or Italians are mobsters. And if you got that out of what I'm saying, you're kind of dumbass. Anyway, but I, if we're wrong on this pronunciation, feel free to la- to to write in and let us know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I this might warrant a call to my brother-in-law. Who, who, who? who okay, this man has the thickest thickest Italian accent I've ever heard. And he, he is 100% old school Italian. Lives in Brooklyn. I might have to call him and ask him to pronounce this word for me. I, I was going to look it up on, on Google, but then I was so sure I knew how to say it that I, I didn't. But here it is. Consigliere. Yeah. Consigliere. Oh, okay. we're going to learn the guy's name pretty soon. We can... We can it makes me feel like I'm saying it wrong every time, even though uh, Dr. Google agrees yes, with me. Yes, because it, it feels like you're fucking forcing your tongue to do shit that it's not meant to. It's like speaking Spanish. I can't roll my R's, so I always sound like Rain Man when I'm trying to speak Spanish. <laughs> That's great. So I, I agree that I'm probably butchering the Italian here, too. But, okay. <laughs> so speaking of butchering, let's get back on track, Frank. Yes. So, Junior's father ran the mob, his consigliere uh, turned state's evidence and betrayed him. And we get a great panel here where we see Junior's dad in jail, just getting shanked with a sharpened toothbrush in the neck. Nice. Junior swore he would cut out the traitor's heart with his own hands and place it on his father's grave. The funeral is the last time that Junior was seen in public. And we get a nice panel where you see he's got like 10 cell phones on his desk. He's keeping a low profile while he's uh, manning the family business. We're on page six. Frank is, he's back to taking the shot, but he's going to want to leave one of the mobsters alive to question. So he identifies through how they interact who he thinks the we- the weakest link is. The two other mobsters, there's three of them, they uh, line up. So he's able to shoot them both in the head with one shot. That causes the weak link in Frank's mind. He just starts shooting randomly and runs away. We're on page seven. Yep. It, it was a beautiful shot, too. 
the way they yeah. illustrated it, the way they set it up, the way how they just accidentally walked in front of each other, and how he was like, you know, took full advantage of it. And uh, yeah, he downs two of the guys, and he starts chasing uh, one of the third. So the third one realizes that maybe it'd be best to get out of there. I love Frank mocking him uh, just internally the entire time. He's like, I'm glad that because Frank is up on top of a building, so it takes him time to rappel down, but he doesn't lose the guy. Because one, instead of running off, the guy runs to the car, which, you know, it's lighted. It's a very obvious escape point. So that's where Frank would have would have probably gone anyway. But the guy kept shooting up in the air, trying to scare whoever took the shot. But all that does is give away his position. Exactly. So yeah, this this cat runs for the car. He's trying to shoot, and Frank intercepts him with. Uh, well, at first, when I first looked at the uh, page, it looked like a nice uh, uppercut, but really, it's it's a eight inch long fucking knife. Yeah, he fucking jams that knife in so hard, he knocks the guy like into the air off of his feet just from the impact of that knife in his gut. And it's, like, you can see in the cold air, like, the gun smoking. You can see the breath coming out of the Punisher. It's a great fucking scene. And it just, even without the knife, there's just that impact in that guy's gut looks painful. Right, yeah. It, 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 it looks like it hurt. This is the Punisher when, like, the, at his best. He's jammed the fucking knife in there so hard, it's only the pressure of the hilt against the wound that's keeping anything from leaking out of this guy. So now he's pumping him for information about Junior's whereabouts. Right, and uh, of course this guy thinks uh, for half a second that he can kind of play dumb a little bit. The Punisher, I mean, he does this shit to people every night. So he informs them that the nearest hospital is three miles away. If nobody pulls the knife out, he might be able to make it. The guy doesn't want to answer, so the Punisher's like, wow, I told you what happens if nobody pulls out the knife. What do you think happens if I twist the knife? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Frank just takes it up a notch there, which I can appreciate. You know, he's got stuff to do. I have to say, though, that bottom panel on page eight where we see their feet, why is the Punisher wearing, like, platform combat boots? It's kind of, those boots are drawn in a super weird way. Yeah, well, maybe it's because he's got a different day job. <laughs> Man, I hope not. <laughs> By night, he's the Punisher. By day, he's the Penisser. <laughs> Male stripper extraordinaire. It's always funny when women interact with the Punisher because they that's the first thing that they notice about him. Like, like Frank does have a nice like body, the nice physique. It's always weird. There's a few issues in like the Garth Ennis run where you'll see Frank uh, having sex, and that's super weird because you never think of the Punisher in that way. Right. But again, even even is like his like him like having sex. It's very cold and methodical. Right. You, you would <laughs> it's think if, super. It's yeah, business. You like. would think Frank is a, almost puritanical in his pursuit. Yeah. It's he realizes he's like, what am I? I'm this this weapon. Or I, 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 but weapons need maintenance. He needs food. He needs this, and so he recognizes that even that, like he'll service that need. And it's like he'll just quietly, without saying or expressing anything, have sex, and then just like roll over. I'm done. And just, just like no emotion behind it. It's, it's nobody's ever read any of the Garth and his stuff. All, almost all the Punisher stuff is good, but that shit is awesome. Right. So he uh, continues on with his interrogation. 
And uh, did we ever get a name for Junior's little lackey guy? I'd have to look back. I don't believe that we do. But whoever this guy is, he's spilling his guts. <laughs> see what yeah, I did there. I see what you did there. Yeah. I'll have to insert a drum. <laughs> Thank you. So he tells Frank he doesn't know where Junior is now, but he knows where he'll be. That on uh, uh, midnight Christmas morning, he'll be upstate at, a, at an orphanage. And that he's there because the consigliere will be there. Right, and uh, Frank kind of deals with this loose end in a rather fun way. Yes, yeah. So the guy wants to know what about the night, because it's still sticking out of him. <laughs> I'd, I'd want so to I know, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what are you going to do? And so Frank says, keep it, and then he just pushes them off the, you see they're on a dock, and he just pushes them in the freezing water. And he just goes down, and he doesn't come back up. Yeah, that is a one-liner worthy of Schwarzenegger. I, I love the, 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 the Punisher one-liners, and he does not disappoint in this issue. They mentioned in the very beginning that it was a cold December, but there hadn't been any snow yet. So we see what the, the delivery was that Frank was waiting for. When he opens up the crate, it's full of what looks like cocaine. So he opens up the bags, and he makes the comment that it looks like a white Christmas after all, as he's dumping all the cocaine. If you like that for comedy, you're going to love the next couple pages, because we go straight to a mall Santa. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. And I, I love the tiny touches they did to keep reminding you that this is a Christmas story, uh, with, say, some of the names, and we'll get to that here in a second. But so we see a mall Santa asking a kid, what he wants for Christmas. We see the Punisher tells the kid to get lost, that they have to do some grown-up talk. Right, and uh, he gives the kid the boot, and we switch over to the next page, which is page... 12. We learn that this mall Santa, his name is Tiny Tim. He's an ex-com. You mean a Christmas story-related name, Tiny Tim? We, we get a couple of those. I think they did a good job of, of tying them in. Okay, go on. So he takes his beard off, and this guy has, like, the most bloodshot eyes. This dude looks like such a hardcore tweaker. Okay, you know who he looks like? Who does he look like? Steve Buscemi. Yes, I could definitely see that. (laughs) He looks like a Steve Buscemi. I mean, he's definitely, like, he's wiry. He's kind of, he definitely looks like he's he's on something. So he's pissed that that some guy he doesn't know is going to come in and, and ruin his gig. The Punisher lets his coat uh, open up so he knows who he's dealing with. So he introduces us. This is Timothy Torino, known to all in A Block as Tiny Tim. So he wants to know about the the orphanage. Tiny Tim says he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So Frank is a reasonable man. He does what anybody would do in this situation. He grabs some fucking Christmas rights and makes a noose and starts to hang in the middle of the, the mall in front of everybody. He's hanging a man dressed as Santa Claus with Christmas lights. I know. There are no fucks given by, by Frank right here. And it is awesome. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the like he just caused a million dollars in therapy bills for these kids over the next like, 40 years. <laughs> Does not give any fucks. No. Well, maybe they figure Santa's flying all by his own. <laughs> oh, I got ahead of my notes. Okay, so we learn that the consigliere is named Gerardo Falsetti. 
So from this point forward, we're just going to call him Falsetti, because it makes me feel less stupid. He disappeared into the Witness Protection Program seven years ago. That douche. But he, yeah, exactly, he did all this shit, and he just disappeared and got off scot-free. But he's back now, and he, for whatever reason, has hired Tiny Tim to play Santa at a party. Yeah. He's got Santa hired on us at the party, and I guess he recognizes him. We learn a little bit later in the story he doesn't necessarily remember him or recognize him, but he kind of does later on. So, I mean, I, I'm wondering if he just hooked up with because we see that he's running with a bunch of ex-cons, and maybe that's how he got Tiny Tim's number. Never really clear on why the Punisher knew to come to Tiny Tim. I assume there's a lot of broken fingers between him being on the wharf and Tiny Tim. Oh, yes. (laughs) I love this last panel on page 13, because you get to see how just just methed out and rotted Tiny Tim's teeth are, and his eyes are bloodshot and, like, going in different directions. Yeah, he looks like a damn freaking chameleon with with a really bad underbite. He looks almost not human. Well, said he wants... To hire Tiny Tim for a Christmas party on Christmas Eve that he's throwing for the orphanage in upstate New York. This is the orphanage that Falsetti had grew up in. Tiny Tim recognized who Falsetti was, so the first thing he did was he went to Junior and let him know, "Hey, I have this guy that you're looking for who sold your dad out." He gave him the location, and so now Junior is going to hit the orphanage to murder Falsetti. Right. Which, you know, makes absolute sense. You know, he was uh, holding up for how long was it? Like a couple of years where after his dad was put in the ground. So he's, uh, you know, here's his opportunity to go get his killer because he vowed he was going to do this. I just love how the story, it's it's 37 pages, but it just flows. It moves super fast. They realized this was a one shot. They had a lot of ground they want to cover. And it just <clears throat> moved. Yeah, I like the... the, the panel with uh, Frank taking a tiny Tim out of a out of the mall with the escalators and everything in the background and all the kids just kind of watching <laughs> yeah the Punisher he wants to go with tiny Tim and he's not going to let tiny Tim out of his sight because he realizes just how tiny Tim set up falsetti if he if he lets tiny Tim go here he's just going to warn junior that the Punisher knows and they'll take out the Punisher when he shows up so he's not taking any chances. Again, this is a man dressed as Santa Claus, punches him in the face, <laughs> and now he's knocked out, and you see him just drag, he's dragging Santa by the scruff of the neck outside out of the mall with these children watching. And there's a kid with glasses between that you can see between Santa and Frank. And he just, his eyes are so big. <laughs> Yeah, there is. Um, yeah, Saint Nick takingly definitely takes some abuse in this uh, this issue here. You mentioned Saint Nick. We get to see on the next page it's the Saint Nicholas Orphanage. So again, they're really hitting home that this is a. Christmas nah, see story. what I did there. <laughs> I did. You, you you tie that in. If you forgot this was a Christmas story, the fact that a man dressed as Santa Claus is being hung in a mall in front of children with Christmas lights again just. <clears throat> All this shit in this story, I, 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 I cannot tell you how much I laughed out loud. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is some good shit. This is some prime. Uh, some of these uh, one-shots or specials are written by, by people who've maybe not necessarily written for, like, the character before. This is absolutely somebody who knows, the, like, who, who knows how to write The Punisher. This is 
just kick ass from start to Right. Start. So, yeah, we cut over to St. Nicholas's Orphanage, and uh, inside, uh, Falsetti and someone else are uh, having a conversation. We see that on the next page that Falsetti, it, he's talking to an elderly priest. He, he explains that he's throwing this Christmas party because he wants to give something back to the kids at the orphanage he grew up in. He doesn't have any good memories of being there. And he's hoping that if he gives them something good to remember, maybe they won't turn out like he did. Right. Yeah, he seems to have atoned for his uh, criminal ways in the past, or at least on the surface, maybe. He's very, he's very much trying to to play the the reformed person, the person who's seen the error of their his of their ways. We'll see if that pans out in the story. Right. Uh, we see on page eighteen. That to be here, Falsetti, he slipped from the Federal Witness Protection Program. He slipped away, and he's hired his own security crew here who are all made up of ex-cons. Right, yeah, and they all have lots of firepower, apparently. They definitely, they, they look like they can handle a typical situation. Uh, we see them because they're looking at somebody's identification. Somebody has shown up at the front gate. Mm-hmm. And we get a great, great page of page, uh, uh, on page 19. We see the Punisher's plan to infiltrate the party. Yeah, and this. Okay, this is my favorite page out of the whole freaking book. Yes. I, I mean, it is, it is a full-page splash with a, with a small panel in the lower left-hand corner. But on, on the big splash, you basically have Frank and Tiny Tim in a sleigh dressed as Santas being pulled by reindeer. They show up yeah, in a reindeer-driven sleigh. It does not get much more merry than that. <laughs> I mean, again, if they're they're showing you that they're going the full nine yards with the uh, with just going into absurdity with the Christmas Christmas imagery, and it's just so great. They they this was already full of Christmas, and they just they just they dialed it up. To oh 11. yeah, this is definitely cranked to eleven. It was <laughs> yeah, I laughed at that one. I did. So yeah, so they're showing up for uh, they're showing up for work apparently. Yep, and we get to see, and I I love this uh, about good, well written Punisher stories. When the Punisher shows up here, you see him like he's scanning the environment. He's already putting together like his plan of how he wants this to go. He's you'll see like this entire a good Punisher story. He's always one or two steps ahead of of everyone else. And you see him putting those plans together here. He's already coming up with a plan to keep the orphans out of the line of fire and plans to funnel the mobsters to the, through the front gate or I'm sorry, the back gate when they get there. Right. So he, uh, I I like when he walks in though, when he walks in and like falsetti's just like, Hey Santa, what's going on? And he just like blows right by him. Doesn't say freaking word. Falsetti has his hand out to shake Santa's hand, and the Punisher just doesn't even acknowledge it. Yeah, he, he just walks right away. Whereas Tim's trying to kind of like, uh, Tiny Tim's trying to trying to play the part of, of, yeah. of Santa, and Frank's just like, he kind of reminds me of uh, the Terminator. You know, he's just methodically scanning everything around him. Yeah, absolutely. There's no personal touches here. I mean, he's just a machine. Right. And the very first thing he does, Holiday <laughs> when he gets there, he puts the kids to work on Christmas Eve building rows of snowmen. Right, which it's definitely, yeah, I, I saw what he was going for when he did that. Yeah, it's, it's great. He just, he picks several kids and he puts together like a work detail 
and he, he specifies he wants two rows of snowmen, each at least four feet high, spaced eight feet apart, all the way down to the rear wall per perimeter. If the kids are confused, this is not what they're expecting. And I love the priest uh, chimes in. I think the kids were expecting someone a little bit more uh, cheerful. I, I love what uh, Tiny Tim says here. Tough love. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> not validating how fucked up this is. And we see, while the Punisher walks on, we see Tiny Tim and the kids making the snow. Yeah. On page 22. So, uh, page 23... Uh, it looks like Frank decides he needs to go out back for a smoke break. And uh, he's, yep. he talks with one of the guards and uh, takes him out in a heartbeat. Yep, he uses the cigarettes to kind of disarm the guard to kind of get him to put his guard down. Asks him what he was in jail for as soon as he hears what it is. Just open hand karate chop to the neck. And then just, yeah, just, just looks like he snaps his neck. Or crushes his freaking throat, one of the two. Anyway, he drags yeah. the body off and hides it. It's totally just, just, again, like a machine, like very methodical. So on to 24, yep. I believe, right? Yep, page 24. We've cut back to the orphanage where Falsetti uh, and the children are sitting down for dinner. Children is in front of the children, or just right in front of the children who are all gathered there. Just out of nowhere, punches Falsetti in the face and breaks his nose. And handcuffs him to the fireplace. <laughs> awesome. So, Falsetti's nose is bleeding. He's his eye is bulging out of his head. He's so mad. <laughs> and so he starts talking about how he's going to kill the Punisher for this. That nobody treats him this way. So the Punisher just sticks his Santa hat in his mouth. Yep. To gag him. So cut to page uh, twenty-five. I think you've got what looks like someone uh, scanning the orphanage with uh, either night vision goggles or something of that sort. Night vision goggles or binoculars or something. Yeah, we see that it is Junior's crew. They have shown up and they're uh, getting ready to storm the orphanage. Junior's ready to throw down. He wants to go in with his men. He declines taking a uh, an AK-47 because he pulls out a knife. And getting he's getting the Christmas spirit. He's come to carve up the turkey. Yeah, and I think that turkey has a name. And it's not Oscar Meyer. Why? Yeah, Oscar Meyer. Uh, no, it is. It's false setting. Yep, he looks like he's uh, getting ready to go in there. And uh, moving on to, I guess it's page 26 now. 26. 26. Frank decides to... Uh, lose his uh, cheery red white santa outfit and goes back to the you know black on black with the skull yep he's uh he's he's dressed uh he's dressed for work now <laughs> yeah so he he tells the children to go down to the crypt of the church which would a small church in a in an at an orphanage have I would crypt? think so at least in the northeast Okay. I mean, I, I just, I thought that they were going to call it the cellar or the basement. It's just, I was not expecting that to be called the crypt. But again, I don't know much about Catholic churches in upstate New York. <laughs> so, so the priest wants to call the police. The Punisher warns him the police are going to get everyone killed. So he tells the, the, the kids to get down into the, the crypt and he gives them a shotgun. The priest does not want the shotgun. He doesn't feel comfortable with it. Frank doesn't care. He just leaves it with him. Yeah, Frank's definitely very uh, almost one-dimensional in how he approaches things. You know, 
yeah, I think really works for the storytelling. Like he's just he's he's a he has all the emotions of a tornado or an earthquake. He's just this force of nature. Yeah, exactly. So he leaves the priest with a gun, and the priest looks a little upset about it. A little mortified. Yeah, but that's the lot he's in right now. So as we saw earlier, uh, the Punisher took out the rear guard. They that's how he funneled the Falsetti or the Falsetti's gang for, to come into the back. They take out uh, the the group that Falsetti's men in the front. So now they they believe they're completely unopposed for their objective in the uh, in the orphanage. Right, but uh, little do they know. That uh, in their way is a uh, double row of uh, snowmen. Yes, which uh, rigged with a special surprise from the Punisher. They have a creamy center. <laughs> yes, exactly, a creamy center. So yeah, the Punisher rigged the uh, the snowmen with claymore mines. I would have loved to seen him explain that, or just see the kids just their reaction to him inserting these things in the snowmen. But yeah, so he he's funneling the, the mobsters through the center of the, the, the yard, and that's where the two rows of snowmen are. So he detonates the the snowmen, and he takes out six mobsters all in one hit. Right. I mean, it was definitely a well-timed, well-executed attack. Takes him out, manages to leave uh, Junior out of the damage area. Yeah, Junior, he's, uh, yeah, he, he, he's able to, to not get hit, and he makes a run for it. We're on page 29. Right. So he's getting the hell out of Dodge, oh. and Frank's rappelling down the the church, which kind of re- is reminiscent of the first page of this book. Yeah, exactly. Falsetti had left his car in the front of the orphanage, so Junior is able to make his way to the car, gets in, and he he gets the car started, and he just plows through the gate, and he's gone. Right, which leads you to the next page, which is, uh, are we at 30 yet? Yeah, page 30. This is a good splash page with uh, two smaller panels on it. Uh, it's basically a really good uh, shot of uh, Frank, and uh, two smaller panels have the car getting away, but this is definitely a a good artistic rendering. Very impressive. I really liked it. Yeah, good. Just good action. This guy, or the artist's artwork is very kinetic, and it really lends itself to a Punisher story. Yes. So the Punisher realizes the guy is getting away. (laughs) What's he going to do? So, of course, Frank jumps into his reindeer-pulled sleigh with Tiny Tim hiding inside. Tiny Tim is skeptical of his plan that he's going to catch up, but Frank explains that the roads are covered in snow and the car didn't have any chains, so it's not going to have a lot. It can't, it can't go too fast because it doesn't have any traction for our audience who's never driven in snow. Uh, it's not going to be moving too Would fast. Would you say that the weather outside was frightful? <laughs> But revenge was going to be so delightful. <laughs> He's got nowhere else to go. Let it slay, let it slay, let it uh, slay. I killed it. <laughs> <laughs> so Punisher throws Tiny Tim out of the sleigh. And he's on this. Uh, he's on the the road for vengeance. He is off to the races, man. So you you've got Junior freaking fishtailing all over the freaking place, and Frank's uh, got his sleigh, and he's pretty much on rails. Yeah, he's uh, going. There's a cool panel here on 32 where you see the car is driving on the road, and there's like an embankment 
on the side that the Punisher actually jumps the car off, or uh, over the car because he's on this raised embankment, <laughs> and while he's he's in the air, he shoots out a tire. I love this silhouette because it gives you the impression that the sleigh and the reindeer are flying. Flying, yes, <laughs> yes. It's a very, very Santa Claus esque panel. Again, they're really hitting you with that that imagery. So the car flies off the road and it lands in a on a frozen lake and it just plows through that ice and it, it goes under and starts to go under. Right. Uh, but Junior manages to get out and he's a you know, he's still half submerged in the ice and he's trying to crawl his way out. We see that he, he dropped his knife that he was gonna use to carve out Falsetti's heart. The Punisher finds it, tells him he dropped his knife and he stabs it in the ice in front of him and that causes the ice to splinter and Junior falls under and drops. I had to do the lame, hey, doctor, lame Darth Vader no. I know you also want to do the, the, the Punisher one-liner. jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, he basically says, uh, well, you've been under a long time, Junior. You might as well stay there. Nice. Yeah, it was definitely very, uh, it was very cold, the way he delivered that. Yeah, he's even got the little Punisher skull uh, uh, shown in his eye. But uh, this was page 34. This is the end of Junior. But wait, where are you going, listeners? We still have three more pages left. His killing plate is still full. Yeah. So we cut back to the orphanage on page 35, and we see Falsetti is still handcuffed <laughs> to the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got Tiny Tim's approaching him with a, looks like a crowbar of some sort. Yeah, I wonder where he found that. In the reindeer um, sleigh shit. Don't you need a crowbar to work on your reindeer sleigh? I just assume that the it was just the orphans the orphans don't have real toys, so they just have like screwdrivers and hammers and crowbars lying oh, around. Oh gosh. <laughs> so, anyways, I guess he's approaching Junior with a not Junior Falsetti with a proposition, yeah. shall we say? Yep, he's uh he's trying to make a deal with him that what's it worth for him to to help Falsetti escape? Falsetti offers him a million dollars if he'll help him get out of there before the Punisher comes back. Right, that seems like a sweet pot, so uh, of course you know, Tiny Tim's going to go for it, right? Yeah, we see that Falsetti, though, is not as uh, dumb as he, he appears. No, no, he's playing fast and loose, that guy. It seems that he does remember Tiny Torino, and that he used to do catering for Junior's people down in Queens, so... He he makes the leap here. He he figures out that it was probably Tiny Tim that ratted him out to Junior, and he does what any what anybody would do in this situation. <laughs> he stab he grabs a butcher or a, a carving knife off the table <clears throat> and stabs a Junior in the chest. Well, yeah, that's what you have to do. Hey, it's the it's the mob. You've got, you've got to carve the turkey. <laughs> we we definitely we had that established. <laughs> Falsetti is leaving, and he walks right into the Punisher. <laughs> I love that. He pretty much he like runs full throttle into the Punisher, which doesn't move him at all. And, and, and then, his, nope. you know, as the Punisher staring down at him, his response is, uh, 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 "This, uh, this, this uh, it, it ain't what it looks like." While well, he's holding a bloody knife. <laughs> yes, it's not what it looks like. Is he's holding the murder weapon? I mean, he got caught full of yeah, it. Yeah, so. 
you know, I'm, I'm I'm not sure exactly what the the Punisher's code or ethos is. You know, apparently drug dealing is definitely a validates a quick uh, quick death. I'm not too sure what uh. Yeah, I'm sure murder validates it, gets you a quick death from the Punisher, so long as uh, it's not someone really horrible and you do the work for him. Yeah, I mean, his, his real, really, I'd say his only code is just to punish the guilty. Well, I think he's going to do a good job of that. Yep. So he, he, it's another great scene of him dragging his victim. He's got the guy by the hair and is dragging him now through the snow. That's got to hurt. Yep. The only thing is we don't get to see the final shot. No, no, no. He, he definitely uh, falsetti begs for his life, and you see Frank hold the gun up to him, and you don't see the final boom or anything like that. But uh, when you go to the last page, you uh, you get a real good treat. Where oh wait, you got a one-liner here. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we we got the the the, the last one one-liner. Right. Of the yeah, where falsetti's on his knees, and he's he's begging Frank. You know, for the love of God, it's Christmas Day. What about? peace on earth and goodwill to all men and uh, you just see frank staring down at him with his gun pointed at his head and you go to the last page and uh on it you uh you see falsetti's dead the uh priest and all the the kids are staring down at the body which frank decided to don a uh, white beard and a red velvet jacket with white fur trim uh on his corpse that's just laid out in the freaking snow and frank says maybe next year yep and we get yep that we just get the kids and the priest staring down on the dead falsetti with the santa garment and beard and hat draped over him so what a great way to end a christmas special with a guy more or less dressed as santa dead in front of a bunch of work thank you so much i like that yes this was a fucking kick-ass way to start punish summer I can't help of when I think of Christmas of thinking uh, of people being dropped into icy lakes and reindeer chases and crackheads being hung by Christmas yeah, lights. Yeah. This is a great way to start. I always off. think of lights of gunfire and blood and explosions whenever I think of Christmas. As you should. Well, that's why I watch Die Hard every time. Well, it is a exactly. Christmas movie. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I, we've recently, the last couple of years, we've done a lot of getting Krampus-related stuff and reading stories. And what is Punisher except, uh, but another version of the Krampus? He punishes the this guilty. This is true. So I know this was a bit of a long episode, and that's okay, because you guys got two great stories, and you got to enjoy them with your the, the Internet's number one Kill Raven-related podcast. Yes, we are number one when it comes to Kill Raven. And if you agree with that, make sure you review us on iTunes, because that's the whole, the review system is the whole thing that makes it worthwhile. You can't find our podcast just by searching it on iTunes, because there's 10,000 other comic book podcasts. We get found by more people by your reviews. If you like what we do here, make, and you have other friends who like weird shit like this, make sure you let them know. And again, if you guys like what we're doing and want to get in on some of this, if you write to us and tell us about the comic books you're reading, how you got into comic books, Whatever comic book related shit you want to tell us, we will read your emails. Uh, you just got to send us to or send it to comicbookdungeonpodcast at gmail.com and we will read them on yes, the air. That's absolutely. Simple. If you want more scat talk and more puke talk, just keep coming right back. We've got it. Yeah. I can't stop talking about that shit in my <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, do you have anything else to say? No. Uh, you know, yeah, looking forward to uh, continuing Punish Ember, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to next episode of Kill Raven because I feel they have room for nothing but improvement. It's or redemption will be spelled Kill Raven that day. <laughs> exactly. But uh, so the final thought. As more and more Marvel TV shows, like you talked about Runaways, uh, comes out, and more and more Marvel movies, and it's becoming this bigger cinematic universe, I think we can all agree that the number one Marvel uh, movie is David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. from the mid-90s. <laughs> God, I still haven't watched that thing. Yeah, that was a gift that you I, got for me many I years know. ago, and I treasured it. And if I you wasn't going to open it and, and watch guys, it, though. <laughs> If you guys consider yourself Marvel fans, make sure you watch TV's Michael Knight, David Hasselhoff as the, the hard grizzled Nick Fury. Jeez, oh, I gotta freaking, I gotta find a freaking site where I can fucking stream it or something. In 2017, Mark and Cruz were sent to prison by a 19's court for a crime they hilariously committed. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the podcasting underground. Today, they are still wanted by iTunes. They survive as podcasters of fortune. If you are bored, if you have nothing else to listen to, and if you can find them, maybe you can listen to the Comic Book Dungeon Podcast.